Welcome, everybody. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, at, at Redemption Church, we spend the summer months focusing always on some aspect of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And this summer, we're reading the book of Numbers, which actually goes by two names. Um, we call it Numbers. In the Jewish Bible, it's called Sefer, Sefer Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And there's actually a little tension wired into these two names. You know, Numbers speaks of order and structure and stability. It's about counting and arranging things. It's really kind of the domain of the priests. And Bamidbar speaks to wildness and, and transition and change. It's about the untamed wilderness. And it's kind of the domain of the prophets and the mystics. And there's a sense in which we all live with this tension inside us between the inner wildness and our need for stability between kind of our inner mystic and our inner priest. And um, the story of Numbers begins with instructions on taking a census. So right away, you know, the priests are winning in this story. They're going to win a lot in the book of Numbers. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the Sinai desert in the meeting tent on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had left the land of Egypt. So this is one year after leaving Egypt. And said, take a census of the entire community of the children of Israel by, the word is a mishpaha, by family or clan, by Bet Avdan, um, the house of the fathers, something like that, by your clan maybe, your tribe, your people. And it says, record the names of all of the men 20 years old and over who are subject to military service in Israel. You and Aaron shall muster them company by company. So this is common in all ancient societies. You had to decide at what age your kids could go to war. For Sparta, I looked it up, they, it was um, age 20. For Athens, it was age 18. In Rome, it was age 17. But in ancient Israel, it was 20 years old. That's when you could finally go into battle. And so, so the Lord commands account of all the Jewish males of fighting age. And this word for that we translate count or enroll or take a census is nasha rosh. Say that with me. Say nasha rosh. This is, a, this is an important word because it, literally what it means is not count. It means lift up the head. The whole phrase is nasha rosh kol adat b'nei Israel, something like lift up the head of the entire community of the children of Israel. Do a head count. But it's, it's much more than that um, because in Hebrew, and I didn't know this, I mean like a commentary, commentary told me this. In Hebrew, there are several verbs that mean counting. Limnot, lifkod, lipsor, lakshov, those all mean simple counting. So why go with nasa rosh, lift up your heads? And the rabbis say that it's actually, it's too odd to just be an accident. And they remind us actually that, you know, census, a census in the ancient world was usually ordered by a king or a ruler as a prelude to taxes or some kind of conscription for service in the army. And, and that's, they say, it's explicit here, they say we're counting soldiers but they say there's actually more going on than meets the eye here. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he writes, normally a census is dehumanizing. 
It's taken as a measure of the nation's strength, which exists in numbers. And the more numerous a nation, the more powerful it is. But that would be to reduce the mass of humankind to a mere statistic. As if to say, like, I am here, but if I were not, someone else could substitute for me. And then he says, Judaism is a sustained protest against that idea. So the rabbis say there's actually two details here that make this sense as different from most. The first is that it was ordered by God, not by a human king or general or something. And the second is the, the use of this phrase, nasa rosh, lift up your heads. It, this isn't simply about you know, which lives and fortunes will pay for the king's wars. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, God's always a little grumpy about those kind of countings. In fact, um, when King David takes a uh, census, that is seen as kind of the beginning of Israel's decline. That's the moment that David begins to act like just all the other kings in the land. Rabbi Sachs again, he says, a divine census, though, is utterly different. It has nothing to do with strength in numbers. It has to do instead with conveying to every member of the nation that he or she counts, that every person, family, and household is held precious by God, that distinctions between great and small, ruler and ruled, Leader and led are irrelevant, that we are each God's image and the object of his love. A divine census, he says, is a gesture of endearment. That's interesting. And this, of course, it sort of recognizes the human tendency to count things that we value. He said they're not simply told to count, they're told to nasa rosh, to lift up their heads, to count in such a way that each person knows they count. They matter. And so, so what matters in the counting was not actually the, the total, but the value of each person who makes up the, the total. That's, that's what they say Nasa Rosh means. So, so it's like if you paid $29 for dinner last night, the meaning of that is just the total figure and whether it was worth it or not, right? And if you went to McDonald's, it was not worth it, right? But if, if um, if you want to say that kind of counting, there are all those other Hebrew words that, that do sums, right? But if you're, say, a school teacher and you take 29 children on a field trip to a museum, you will spend all day counting them, right? On the bus, at lunchtime, when you're getting ready to leave, every time you go to do something, you have to count them. And what matters is not just that you have 29 students in, in total, but that you have your 29 students. Like, you can't just trade out one for a little nicer one, you know, more well-behaved. And there can't be only 28, right? It's, if there's only 28, this is a crisis. You can't move until everybody is there. Nasa Rosh is like that. There's a medieval rabbi, Rashi, he said it this way. Because they, the children of Israel, are dear to him, God counts them often. He counted them when they were about to leave Egypt. He counted them after the golden calf, and now he counted them again. So to be counted is to be seen, to be valued. To be counted is to count. Now, of course, there is an obvious problem here. The women already spotted it. Um, because not everyone is counted. I mean, every family is counted, but only men were counted. Only men who could fight, even. Women weren't counted. Children were not counted. 
the elderly, those from the tribe of Levi were told, they're all left out, which sort of raises the question, do those people count for the people of God? And in fact, who counts is an important question for any community or society. It's interesting, in America, you know, we, we are required by the Constitution each, each decade to perform a census. But in the original Constitution, only certain people were counted. And there was an argument about whether to count Native Americans and, and, and slaves. Because, you know, if slaves are, are, are property, then they should not be counted. But then they could be taxed, and this was bad for the South. But if slaves were counted, then they were people who deserved representation in Congress, which is kind of good for the South. But if they were people, then they had, according to the same document, unalienable rights. So how could they still be slaves? It was kind of a twisted conundrum. And the three-fifths compromise settled things. They said that they would count the whole number of free persons, excluding Indians, and three-fifths of other persons. So they decided Native Americans did not count at all, which no doubt made it easier to dispossess and kill about 19 million of them over the course of a few centuries. African slaves only counted as three-fifths of a person. So slavery would last another century in America, and racial inequality continues to this day. And all this was set in, in motion. It was justified and sustained by our counting. We count those who count. But then, in chapter 2, there's this kind of little subversive undercurrent that emerges when they talk about the arrangement of the camp. This is fascinating to me. It says, the children of Israel shall encamp each man under his own dagals, um, like a standard or banner, or it could mean military unit. There's like a big argument. It was fascinating to read. It's, I have no idea which it is. It's either a standard or it could mean standard slash your unit. With the ototh, your flag, your insignia, your, your banner of um, bet Avotam, again, the, the father's house, around the tent of meeting must they encamp, but it says at a distance. And now listen to how it says that they should arrange themselves. It says on the east side toward the sunrise will be the banner of Judah's camp with its military units. Alongside them, the tribe of Issachar and the tribe of Zebulun. Then on the south will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to them and Gad next to them. Then on the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. The tribe of Manasseh will be next to them and the tribe of Benjamin will be next. And on the north will be the divisions of the camp of Don under their standard. The tribe of Asher will camp next to them and Naphtali will be next. So, so hopefully you can kind of picture what's happening here. I think this drawing helps. That after they count the fighting men, they're told to muster them to, in military units, to have them stand in formation around the tabernacle. So think Braveheart, you know? This is what we're, we're talking about. With 12 tribal families flying flags and banners with their house insignia, which in, in this, how they're, they're can, or how they're ordered here will sort of determine where they march anytime they move. And it's thought that each tribe had their own house color that corresponded to to the jewel, if you remember, on the high priest um, chest piece, 
there was a jewel that represented each tribe, and their banner was supposed to be the same color as the jewel that represented them. And these four main tribes are sort of at the head of each side, flying their colors, and a, and a flag with their insignia on it. Judah, of course, is a lion, the lion of Judah. Reuben was a man. Ephraim was thought to be an ox. Don, an eagle. And, and then the, the lesser tribes would be flanking them. And then out beyond this formation, at a distance, it said, would be their tents, like these little mobile cities that were organized there. Now, when, when we look at this, like we see a confusing, somewhat random array of oddly named Jewish families, right? And it's trivia. What they would have seen immediately is subversive. And it's the fact that each side is arranged according to their mothers. Jacob's sons, you know, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, each with a handmaiden who also gave them children, Bilhah for Rachel, Zilpah for Leah. So if you track which child, which child's tribe belongs to which mother, you can see each side was arranged according to who their mother was. Um, Leah and her children on the east and south, Rachel's kids on the west and the concubines on the north. And so, so women may not be counted in the census, but they counted in the story. God subversively structures the entire Hebrew camp by the mothers, the matriarchs of the family. And so if our counting tells us who counts, then so does our arranging. The way we arrange our communities tells us who matters, right? It communicates value. This is what's intended by old phrases like, there goes the neighborhood. How we arrange the neighborhood communicates value. And of course, um, this is a whole another troubling aspect of our own history as a people. It all stems really from the establishment of the GI Bill, the legislation passed after World War II to help out soldiers who were coming back from the war which provided things like money for college and low-interest mortgages and low-cost health insurance. And these benefits really fueled this era of profound prosperity in our nation. And, and theoretically, they were granted to all soldiers, but in practice, they were extended almost exclusively to white men. The problem um, actually began... A, a bit earlier during the Great Depression when, when people were defaulting on their mortgages, the U.S. government founded something called the Homeowners Loan Association in 1933. They began um, purchasing homes when people were about to go into default. And they would write down the mortgages, sell them back to the same owner, homeowner at a lower cost, and the government would just eat the loss. But the people got to keep their homes, and the whole program was handled through local banks, which kept them afloat. And part of the administration of the HOLC involved issuing these color-coded maps of every city, indicating the level of risk for the loans. The safest neighborhoods to issue a loan were colored green, the next safest blue, then yellow, and then what they called high-risk neighborhoods were labeled red. And it turns out any neighborhoods in which people of color were living were, even if they were, you know, middle-class good income neighborhoods, they were automatically colored red. This is the practice known as redlining. If you owned a home in a red district, 
during the Great Depression, the government would not purchase your loan. If you defaulted, the bank would take your home and then rent it or auction it off to white landlords who could pay cash. At the same time, local governments, real estate companies, banks, they got together and just decided to refuse to allow people of color to live in certain neighborhoods, green, blue, and yellow parts of town. They could only live in the red sections of town where no banks, by the way, would give them a mortgage, right? So then you fast forward to the GI Bill in World War II, no veterans of color could purchase a home um, in, in any of the other areas except for red, but they had to live in the red zone where you couldn't be issued a mortgage by the bank. So, so they, had, they couldn't buy a home. They had to rent, usually from white landlords. I mean, think about that. The post-war housing boom is how that whole generation built their wealth. The government was subsidizing it to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, but not for people of color. I found this this week. I'd never seen it before. This is a map of Johnson County, Kansas from that time. You can see that's, that's uh, I-35 kind of cutting up and diagonally to the right. Route 10 there is Shawnee Mission Parkway. Everything in the, in the little shaded um, lines, that's, that was farmland. It's all houses. Now it's crazy. 435 there at the, at the bottom. Almost all of what became Overland Park, Shawnee, Lenexa is, is colored yellow here, which means they had racially restrictive covenants on the books. Persons of color were not welcome in those neighborhoods. They couldn't live there. And this is Johnson County, you guys, built on the practice of redlining. Veterans in, around the U.S., they, they could receive college tuition aid under the GI Bill, but most colleges and universities were not integrated. So black veterans applied for tuition benefits and sat in front of caseworkers who pushed them toward low-wage low job training instead of four-year colleges. When, when Social Security was established by FDR, these southern senators held that bill hostage until everyone agreed to exclude two classes of workers, domestic workers and agricultural workers, majority black professions. And, and so, so this massive post-World War II economic boom in the U.S. Was, was built on things like home ownership, the arrangement of, of our communities, our camps, education, better paying jobs, free health care, social security. The government spent billions subsidizing this while people of color were mostly locked out. This is the arrangement of our camp in our history. And if you look on our maps today, this is one um, that I, where I put them side by side. Poverty on the right is indicated by red. Look how similar it is today. You can do this with violence, map it, homicide, struggling schools, access to health care, payday loan shop. They look roughly the same, and it all stems from that decision of how to arrange our, our camp. Because the arrangement of the camp tells us who counts, who matters. And of course, what we think about this today what people say about it, the kind of uh, meaning we make of it, and how we should respond. It depends on which banner 
you're flying, what your colors are, usually red or blue, with a little mascot on it, one of two choices, right? The flag we fly, it's like a pretty good predictor of a person's response to our history. And I have to confess, I always feel a little bit envious of people who still feel like they fit into a camp. Um, just for me, I'm like a constant outsider. It's just my personality type. I think I mostly do this to myself. Anybody do Enneagram stuff? Enneagram 4? That's what we do. We're just like always a constant outsider. But I struggle to feel like I belong with any group, and I always envy those people who have a flag to wave, you know, who wear their team colors. And, and I wonder what that must be like to just be so sure that your camp is right about everything, so certain that your truth is infallible and absolute. Like, I remember feeling that way when I was, was younger, but I haven't felt that way for a long, long time. And you know what? I blame Jesus <laughs> for this. What's the prophet's line? You have tricked me, and I am tricked, right? I think following Jesus has made me less, less certain of my own truths. It's made me into a person who can see the truths of multiple camps, which is why Jesus' followers often end up politically and socially homeless. I mean, where do people go who try to honor competing narratives, people who try to have open hearts toward many points of view, people who know there's always another side to the story, another way to narrate the events of our, our lives, like where's our flag, where's our, our colors? Where do you go when you don't feel like you fit in with any of the camps that seem to dominate in our society? Ideological camps, political, racial, economic camps, class, gender, sexuality camps. What if we don't fit with any of our old camps anymore, especially with politics and, and ideology, as they continue to just like hijack the American church? Religion now follows politics for most people. Religious camps wave the flags of ideologies and political parties. And I get it. Like, it's, it's much easier to passionately defend the status quo in, in almost any religion. To dismiss any new thinking as sort of, you know, loosey-goosey, a little too much compromise. And to say, you know, they, don't, they, don't, they no longer believe in truth or accountability. I get that impulse because I, I'm like have a, I'm just like a naturally conservative temperament, probably because I so desperately want to belong. And, and one of the easiest ways to feel a sense of belonging is, is to just insist that the world is black and white. The world is made up of good guys and bad guys, of victims and villains. It's easy to wave our flags and point out who's to blame, who's to fear. It gives just an immediate sense of belonging. But I wonder if we wave our flags because we don't know who we are or where we belong. And we want our lives to count. We're trying to, to make sure that we are counted. And so we carry our banners, and we reinforce our camps, 
And the problem for the Christian is that this kind of belonging is based in exclusion, not embrace. And it's, it's not the way of Christ. So much easier to build community through exclusion. I mean, we all learned this in middle school, right? You remember that far back when we first played the game of who's in and who's out. For me, it was just mostly losing this game and not understanding the rules. But the more exclusive the group, the more precious the sense of belonging. Think about that the next time you hear somebody talk about real Americans, real Christians. You know exactly what game they're playing. And that camp, you guys, is not our home. It never has been. And it certainly is not now. And I know it can feel a little bit scary, especially as people line up to tell you that you're doing it wrong, and they will line up, right? That you're wishy-washy, you're avoiding moral clarity, you, you don't care about the truth or principles or right and wrong, right? Or whatever boundary marker they've put in place between those who count and those who don't count. And I think learning to reject that, that false binary of us versus them, it's a deep part of our tradition that goes all the way back to Sinai. Like this little flashing light on the dash warning us that um, enforced uniformity of thought is a pretty good name for a war. Now, if we start seeing both sides of things. Some will point out the obvious problems with those other camps and new positions. And of course, they're right because every camp has its problems. Every position is flawed and every community is broken and just plain like wrong about any number of things at any given time. But here's, here's the thing. That wrongness is not our wilderness. Our mistakes are not our problem. It's the separation we create to try to feel like we're right and they're wrong. That's the problem. And God constantly subverts it in Scripture. Anytime we're tempted to, like, by that warm rush of belonging, that we get as we wave our flags, when we're, we're tempted to drink from the fountain of us versus them, or our information is better than your information. We, we should remember this, because I, I left out one group from the arrangement of the camp. They are the Levites. The Levites weren't really included in, in any camp. They had no flag to wave, no banner, no colors. They would have no territory of their own in the promised land. They weren't given land. They had no army, no fighting man. They were not counted with the other 12 tribes in the original census. They'd be counted separately and beginning at age one month, not 20 years. So it's clear that the Levites were never intended to, to be soldiers. And they didn't camp out at a distance among the other tribes. They were to camp in sort of a circle right around the tabernacle in a sense, to spend their lives standing, camping between God and, and the people, trying to maintain contact between the two, trying to mediate God's presence to those around them. 
we should probably consider the implications of where the Levites are positioned in the camp. That actually those who stood without a camp were the ones called to do the holiest work within the community. And they were the ones who dwelled nearest to the presence of God. The Levites refused to choose, in a sense, between their loyalty to their own people and their loyalty to all people. So they belonged to all camps and to none. And because of this, they lived as priests who spent their lives doing the holy work of the camp. And things have really changed in recent years. I'm sure you feel it. I know I do. In the U.S. and really all around the world, we, we live at a time when the dehumanization of the enemy has become the norm. You know, people are just constantly training on how to hate our neighbor. It's, it's everything from cable news to your favorite podcast or website or YouTube channel. We are bombarded by voices telling us that those who see the world differently are your enemy. They hate you. They don't want you to exist. And politicians and preachers, of course, stoke it all for money and power and belonging. They, they wave their flags and promise that they're fighting for us, right, for our group. And it's, it's all a big lie. And in a world like that, I just think maybe nothing could be more important than for the people of God to learn how to refuse to choose between loyalty to our own people and loyalty to all people. To just collapse that distinction and see it as the same thing. And I think Christian discipleship is about this extended training and how to say, I don't have a camp. Or, or maybe I'm from the camp of no camp. We call ourselves a church, mostly because nobody even knows what that means. And it's always changing depending on what's happening around the world. And for us, it's not just a church. We call ourselves a ragamuffin church, which could mean anything. Mostly it just means it's full of broken and beautiful strugglers who are unafraid to admit our own weakness. A church that says everybody counts. Everybody has a place with us. And we're trying to learn patiently how to refuse to choose between loyalty to our own people and loyalty to all people. And we suck at it sometimes. But we never give up, you know? We belong to all camps and to none. And for one simple reason, because we belong to Christ. We are, we are his body. Think about what that means. We are his body. And when he was alive and had a body, this is what he did with his body. And now that we are his body, we're trying to remain faithful to the way he was in the world. It's what it means to be the church. In our attempts to be his hands and feet, we try to let our body reflect the way his body was. And if we draw our line to like anyone 
part of the children of the ancient children of Israel. We draw it to the Levites. It's Christians. It's called the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. It's explicit. Because we follow Jesus, we draw our alliance to them. And because we follow Jesus, we're the people who practice for however long it takes how to see the humanity of the other, the enemy, the person we've been taught to despise. And to learn to see them, like against all instincts and programming, to see them for what they are, the precious children of a God who loves without prejudice or distinction. We try to learn to say to them, Nasa Rosh, lift up your heads, let us count you, because you count to us, to God, to the, to the world. We are the people who strive to, to listen, you know what I mean? Listen, like not just wait while you plan what you're going to say next, but listen. We, and we don't have to agree with everyone, but we must at least try to listen. We must at least try to learn from those who see the world differently than we did. And because we follow Jesus, we're supposed to be the ones who don't want anybody to be banished from the group. We don't want to build our identity or our, our self-worth on exclusion or some pathological need to be seen as right and righteous and holy. Like, forget that, man. Like, they called Jesus a drunk and said he hung out with sinners and losers. That's our guy. That's who we follow. That's what he did with his body. And yes, many will say, because we do this, that we don't count. And they'll offer us no place in their camps. We'll have no flag to fly among them, no banners, no army to fight for us and keep us safe. And when they line up all the righteous, shiny, happy, beautiful people will be counted out. But who wants that anyway? Like, I've always thought that's kind of creepy. Who wants to be part of that? And they'll say we've lost our way and are leading others astray. And maybe we are. Because who can really know for sure? And every community is dead wrong on many things. But this I do know. Because I've experienced it so many times and now it's like life to me. I know that wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, meaning following his way, Whenever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners who protected the weak and included and counted the outcasts. When, we, when two or three gather in his name, God will come alive in our midst and we will know God as pure love and grace. And we will become a kingdom of priests who mediate that love and grace to a world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we just confess to you um, that we're part of this country, this nation of people that is, is so incredibly wonderful and yet 
there are just these pieces of our past that are, are so broken. And it's about who we've counted and how we've arranged our camp. And we confess that we feel maybe more now than ever disconnected from the mainstream camps in our society. And so I pray that we would just be brave to hold on to one another and hold on to Christ and the way you keep showing up in the world when we, when we gather together to try to see the world the way you see it. I pray that you would make us brave and strong and courageous in our loving of the outsiders. Subversive in the way we arrange our own camps. Ready to listen, ready to extend hospitality to anybody. And I pray that as we chase this kind of a life, God, that you would that you would come alive among us, that we would sense your spirit, that we would learn to see your face in the face of the other. Oh God, that this would name us, this would tell us who we are. Amen. Will you stand with me? And we're going to receive communion. We invite at Redemption anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. And the way we do it is we just come row by row. The ushers will offer you a plate of bread and a cup. You take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer, I will remember or however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this is that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and, and all of his disciples, they shared in this same common cup and loaf. And he said, here's what I want you to do. Whenever you gather, you're going you're gonna to repeat this ritual. And, and the, the bread is like my body. The cup is like my blood, my life. And you're going to receive it into your bodies. And, and you're going to know what you're made out of. You're going to know how to be you. And then you're going to go out and be my hands and feet in the, in the world. He said, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so this is why we receive communion at Redemption and why we just set no limits uh, on the table. Like any, any ragamuffins who call on the name of Jesus can join us up here. And um, So before we do that, though, let's, let's pray a blessing on it. Oh, God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us... Uh, means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?